Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, brand new book. Uh, This morning we're going to attempt to um, get a complete picture of John the Baptist by harmonizing all four of the Gospels. So let's begin where Paul read for us earlier in um, Mark, chapter 1. This is Peter's Gospel. It was given to him, handed down to Mark. Mark actually wrote it, but uh, most commentators believe that this was Simon Peter's gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, and make his path straight. Now John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance and the remission of sins. And all the land of Judah and those from Jerusalem went out to him, were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel hair, with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, now this word is going to occur um, many times. It's the the reoccurring word along with Anne in the Gospel of Mark. And I mentioned that on Wednesday evening. And this is the first immediately in Mark's Gospel. And immediately, and the one that's even more prominent is the word and, so that's also there. And immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, this, this isn't in my notes, but I uh, will comment on this. Uh, for those who do not hold to the Trinity, uh, they say the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. Uh, neither is the word rapture, but it's still taught. Uh, here we have um, the Father speaking from heaven. We have the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove, landing upon Jesus, who is the Messiah. And you have the Trinity right there. Let's turn from there and begin to harmonize areas that John uh, Markle touched on here. We're going to find, as we turn to Matthew chapter 3, for our next, i got to go backwards, Matthew chapter 3, drawing your attention to verse 7. And here, Matthew gives us more of John, uh, basically concerning the scribes and the rebuke of the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 7 of chapter 3, but when he saw, this is John the Baptist, many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, they didn't come to get baptized, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think or say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children 
to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Sort of an indictment against their, you know, their religious hypocrisy. And um, John did not mince words. He was um, um, very, very straightforward with their hypocrisy. And uh, he's talking about um, them depending upon their righteousness. But he says that axe has already been laid to the, the root of that tree. And um, he goes on and explains to them his reason for baptizing. Now, we're going to take it and turn it around here. Um, John rebukes the scribes and the Pharisees. When we go to Luke chapter 1, we're going to find um, the Pharisees actually addressing questions to John. So let's turn to the Gospel of Luke, um, chapter 1. Let's, let's do it. Uh, this deals with the birth. And I mentioned on Wednesday night, uh, Mark does not deal with a genealogy. Uh, he doesn't deal with the birth of the Lord. Luke deals with the, the birth of the Lord in quite a bit of detail. I'm going to turn some things around here. Let's start with verse 11. Um, Zacharias, uh, the way they uh, did their, he was a Levite. Uh, he was involved with a rotation of working in the temple. Every two weeks they would switch, and another Levite would take his place, and they would go in and put oil in the, in the candelabra and put the incense on, prepare the bread. Well, this was John the Baptist's father, who was, it was his turn to be in the, in the temple, and an angel appears to him, and uh, tells him that he's going to have a child, picking it up in verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and he fell, um, fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, but also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from the mother's womb. I'll talk about more of the vow of a Nazarite, which John was under, a vow of a Nazarite, and I'll explain that in just a bit. Verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord. And this verse 17 is very important. He will also go before him in the spirit and in the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the father to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom and just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to turn quickly to the last statement of the Old Testament. It happens to be Malachi chapter four. The last two verses say this. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. This is a clear reference to Revelation chapter 11, that before the tribulation period, he's gonna send Elisha. 
So we know, that's a whole Bible study within itself, uh, talking about the first three and a half years of the two witnesses, the two olive trees from Zechariah 4, um, ministering for three and a half years. So half of this year is about the Old Testament prophet Elijah. And it refers to his future coming. He hasn't even come in our day yet. This is during the very beginning, right after the rapture, I believe, Moses and Elijah will be the two witnesses. So that's what this is a reference to. And then it says, And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Now, go back and read verse 17. This clearly is a fulfillment uh, in my cross-reference here of Malachi 4, verse 5 and 6, but it doesn't pertain to Elijah. It pertains to John the Baptist. Um, And we have two things going on here. It says the spirit, the same spirit that was on Elijah is going to be on John the Baptist. And there's actually a connection being made here. Remember, um, Elisha, um, we'll be talking about Elisha when we go, go to the Old Testament and talk about Elijah this morning. When he saw the anointing that was on Elijah, he said, Lord, I'd like to have a double portion of what that guy's got. And he says, well, we'll see. If, uh, if you see me taken up into heaven today, you'll, you'll get what you're asking for. But if you don't, you don't. It's in the Lord's hands. So now let's go on more farther to the birth of verse, go to 39, Luke 1, verse 39. Um, Mary is with child in the womb. Um, I should say Elizabeth is. Verse 39, now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country in haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the baby leaped in the womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Uh, But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. So here's John the Baptist doing a a jig, (laughs) a Jewish jig, (laughs) um, because he had the awareness. And I've often wondered... um, um, I've had actually mothers that come to church pregnant every Sunday and then the baby's born. I always, I always tell the girls when they're pregnant, it's going to be a boy. I always tell them it's a boy. I figure, you know, I got a 50-50 shot at it. <laughs> if I'm right, I'm a prophet. If I'm wrong, I'm a false prophet. <laughs> but she, I've had mothers say, you know, I wonder because I believe my baby recognized my voice. And I wonder if my baby recognizes your voice because she's always, he or she would be listening. And evidently, John, I'm not, I think this is a unique happening here, but he was filled with the Holy Spirit, John the Baptist, while he was still in the womb, and he had an awareness. He had an awareness that this was the Messiah. And he, even before he came out of the womb, had this awareness where he, where it says, He leaped in my womb for joy. Now, um, we 
I'll just um, have you turn to the last verse that tells us a little bit more. Verse 80 in Luke 1. It says, So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the desert till the days of the manifestation of Israel. Um, when we visit Qumran, uh, this is, would have been where the zealots would uh, live a very um, dedicated sort of Nazarite-type lifestyle, very, very simple. They lived together, they ate together communally, and their job was uh, copying um, the, the scriptures. That's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Um, at Qumran. And in the museum, you actually can see the original copies in Jerusalem of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, they have a slide presentation that they show you. And they actually, because John was baptizing just a couple miles away at um, Barbar on the Jordan, they think that they put John in their presentation when they have the tourists go through. So it could be that John, it says he lived in the wilderness, and it could be um, that he actually was a part of this community. And, um, but he lived, it, we, we're told here, in the desert till the days and the manifestation of Israel. Let me explain the vow of a Nazarite. A Nazarite, um, <clears throat> if you go back to verse 15, um, was dedicated completely to the Lord. He could not cut his hair. He could not have anything off the fruit of the vine. He could not have grapes. He could not drink wine. And um, um, the disciplined lifestyle of uh, living out in, in the wilderness was what John did until the day that Jesus showed up, as we read in Mark's account. Let's turn to the Gospel of John. Take it one step farther. John chapter 1. Uh, verse 19 tells us, now this is a testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So now the priests and the Levites and the Pharisees are asking the questions, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, I am not the Christ. And the first thing they asked him then was, well, what then? Are you Elijah? Now, why would they ask that question? Well, the last verse of the Old Testament is, I will send you Elijah the prophet. And they are waiting for Elijah to show up. Let me just say at this point that John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. Between Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, and Matthew chapter 1, is a is a space of 400 years. Now just pause for a second and put that in perspective. How old is our country? And roughly double it. And for 400 years, God is not speaking. The last thing he said is, I'm gonna send you Elijah. He's gonna turn the hearts of the fathers towards the children, but it's a double prophecy. And um, as we take the opportunity, have the opportunity to explain the importance of prophecy, this is one of the places that we have a double prophecy um, pertaining to two different people but with the same anointing, but we have a 400-year gap. Even farther, when you go back to 1 Kings 19, 
where we'll look at the ministry of Elijah in just a little bit. So, are you Elijah? And he says, no, I am not. Now, Jesus is going to contradict that shortly. And he says, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to them, well, who, who are you that we will give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And then he just quotes Isaiah 40, another prophecy. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the words of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, from here, I'm going to have you turn to verse 33 and 34, where we read in John 1, John says, I did not know him. Now, they were cousins, six months apart. He says, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. John himself didn't even know that his cousin Jesus was the Messiah, and he didn't know him until he actually saw the heavens open and the Holy Spirit descending. Aha, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and he points him out. That was John's whole purpose. Um, We're going to find out in a moment that Jesus called him the greatest man that ever lived, yet he never did one miracle. He had one job, and that was to point out there he is right there. There's the Messiah. Let's turn to... As um, the the harmony of the gospel here, um, it helps us understand the disciples' question that they're going to have in Matthew chapter 17 concerning Elijah and John the Baptist. So let's turn to uh, Matthew chapter 17 at this time and make eternal life this morning. Matthew 17 of course, is uh, the experience of Peter, James, and John going up on the Mount of uh, Transfiguration. Verse 1, now the six days uh, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, uh, up on a high mountain by themselves and was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with him. This had to be quite an experience. Jesus is glowing. Moses and Elijah from the Old Testament show up. And this is one of the reasons I believe, I know for sure one of the two witnesses is Elijah, because Malachi tells us that. But because of the miracles that are done by these two witnesses, one of them is um, turning water into blood. Now, who does that remind you of? Moses. So if some people say, well, it's appointed unto man once to die, therefore it can't be Moses because Moses died. And, um, and they say it's got to be Enoch. And if you hold to that opinion, that's perfectly fine. You're wrong, but it's perfectly fine. <laughs> Let's go on. Well, Peter, being Peter, answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be, I could just hear Peter rattling this off quickly. Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you, if you wish, we can make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was still yakking, <laughs> speaking, behold, 
a bright cloud overshadowed him, and suddenly a voice came out saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. I think Peter, James, and John, they'd been walking with the Lord for a while, but all of a sudden Moses and Elijah, well, Peter couldn't control himself. And he said, well, we should build some tabernacles for all three of you. And the Lord from heaven, the Father from heaven said, no, 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 no. It's not about Moses and it's not about Elijah. It's about my son. Good place for an amen. It's about my son. Listen to him. All right, then, verse six, when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and don't be afraid. And when they had lifted up their heads, they saw no one but Jesus only. Elijah and Moses were gone. But it got them thinking about that scripture in the Old Testament concerning Elisha and Malachi. So they said, uh, Jesus said, as they came down the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And the disciples asked him saying, well, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And in my cross-reference, it has Malachi 4, verse five, the very last um, verse of the Old Testament. Again, God had not spoken in 400 years, but he's speaking again through John. Then Jesus answered and said to them, well, truly, Elijah is coming. Would you please notice that? It's in the future tense. The Old Testament appearance, he doesn't talk about has come. He's going to. Elijah truly is coming. Future tense. This is a reference to um, them during the Great Tribulation and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at his hands. Verse 13, the lights go on for the disciples. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. And here again is a direct link. Elijah's coming. But I'm telling you that Elijah has already come, and they killed him. Oh, let's go back to when, when John was in prison, and to that we need to go to Matthew chapter 11. So we're getting a complete picture here, hopefully. Matthew 11, verses um, 2 and 3. The, the setting here is John called Herod out because he was living with his brother's wife. And that offended her, and she wanted John, she wanted John's head. And before he is killed, the setting here is he's in prison. Now, I've entitled the morning's message, Days of Doubt. And here's the reason that I chose that title. Verse two, and when John had, heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And I almost can't believe what I'm reading here. I got John with big letters saying, are you kidding me? John, you're the man. (laughs) You're the one. It was your one responsibility to point out the Messiah and now you're asking Is he the one? 
or should we be looking for somebody else? And um, at this point, let me just check my notes here. He goes on to say in verse um, 4, Jesus answered and said, well, go tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the death hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And he was saying all the things that only the Messiah would do to reassure John. But then he says something else that only Jesus would know. And he says in verse six, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now this message was to be given to John. Just tell him all these miracles that were done. But then tell him this. Tell him, and blessed is the man who is not offended in me. Now there's an implication here. And the implication is that John the Baptist is somehow offended by Jesus. Well, that raises the question, why would John the Baptist ever be offended by Jesus? Think this through with me and turn to verses 18 and 19. Remember the lifestyle of John the Baptist. He had the vow of a Nazarite. Couldn't cut his hair, couldn't eat grapes, couldn't drink wine. And we read here in 18, we feed John came neither eating and drinking, and they said he has a demon. He was very strict in his lifestyle. But the son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, he's a gluttonous man. He's a wine-bibber. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. Here's John living this very outwardly righteous, holy lifestyle. And here's Jesus, let's use Zacchaeus for an example. Hey, Zacchaeus, come down out of the tree. I'm having supper at your house tonight. Everybody hated Zacchaeus. Why? He was a tax collector. And John had gotten word that here's, here's is the Messiah is going to be hanging out in a tax collector's house, eating supper. And um, I believe this stumbled John to the point that he took offense, that Jesus, um, uh, with John, they had to come to him. And all they heard was, repent and get your act together. You're a sinner. And they would. Remember, the spirit that was on John the Baptist was, was on Elijah. And I bet you... Uh, to hear him speak and preach after not speaking, God not speaking for 400 years. You have John showing up. The people were coming to him, but with the Lord, it was sort of just the opposite. Jesus went to the people. He hung out with people of quote-unquote questionable character, like healing, um, not healing, but when a woman was caught in the act of adultery, they came to him. Well, the law says the stoner, but what do you say? And Jesus, they were trying to trick him, of course. Law says stoner. And um, Jesus said, okay, but here's the deal. The person that doesn't have sin, he's the first one that can pick up a stone and, and, and kill her. Well, he got, began to write on the ground. I think those people that were asking for that woman to be stoned, writing their names down, you liar and looks at him, and he takes off. And the other one, uh, you adulterer, with his, his name, that guy takes off, and all of a sudden, nobody's there. <laughs> Everybody went home, they had something to do. 
And he says, where are your accusers? None here, Lord. Lord? Where did that come from? Well, I think during this whole process, like the thief on the cross, she became aware that this guy has to be somebody special to put these guys in their place like he's doing. And I believe uh, the Lord was not condoning her sin. Matter of fact, as she's walking away, he says, go and sin no more. And she didn't. I believe she was born again, that she believed in Jesus right there on the spot. But my point is that John only preached repentance. Jesus, um, because he was eating with Zacchaeus, he was letting prostitutes off the hook as far as I think John was thinking, and I think it personally uh, offended John. So I think when the Lord said to John's disciples, you go talk to John. Tell him the blind see. Tell him the lame walk. Uh, One more thing, tell John this also. Blessed is the man who isn't offended in me. I think it nailed John right between the heart because he was. And only John and Jesus knew it. Okay. Um, Let's remember that John was under the vow of Nazarite versus the true Nazarite from the city of Nazareth and the grace that the Lord gave. That's sort of a harmony of the gospel of John the Baptist. And as you can tell, we definitely have a link. Let's go to um, chapter... Oh, There's a verse that I wanted to read. Let's look at verse 11 of chapter... Um, of of, uh, Matthew 11. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there's not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And then in verse 14, he says in 13, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. This tells us that John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. Now verse 14, remember they said to him, well, are you Elijah? And John the Baptist said what? No, but read verse 14. If you're willing to receive it, he, John, is Elijah who is to come future tense. So we have Elijah in the Old Testament coming again um, before the great tribulation and during the great tribulation. But here Jesus uh, says, if you have ears to hear, then hear. Well, let's take a look at Elijah. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 18 in the Old Testament. 1 Kings 18. Ahab had married Jezebel. Jezebel was responsible for bringing idolatry into Israel. One of the reasons it's important to study the Old Testament is because when you get to the New Testament, in this case it would be the book of Revelation, talking about the church of Thyatira. And he says, I hear you have this woman there named Jezebel, and they teach my people to commit spiritual fornication. Not physical fornication, but spiritual fornication. So you gotta understand, the Old Testament story about Jezebel, if you're gonna understand what Jesus said to the church of Thyatira. He said, look, you guys have this woman there 
who's teaching my people to commit spiritual fornication. Spiritual fornication, what it means is adding to or taking away from scriptures or introducing what Jezebel did to Israel, which was the worship of Baal. And now most of the country, because of Jezebel, is worshiping Baal instead of Jehovah. So we pick it up in verse... Uh, chapter 18, verse 36, where we read, um, let me find it real quick. It came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. What I've, I'm, I can't read the whole chapter, it's just too lengthy. What's in between here is Elijah's calling for a showdown on Mount Carmel. And you get your prophets of Baal and... Um, I'll, be the, I'll show up on behalf of Jehovah. We'll pray. The God who answers by fire, he, he'll be the God that we worship. Everybody agree? We agree. So now you have this great big get-together. Uh, one of the, my favorite spots in Israel is actually going up on Mount Carmel. You can see the Mediterranean. Uh, you can see the Valley of Megiddo. You can see Nazareth across the valley. So they've all gotten together the prophets of Baal have done their thing. They have this sacrifice. And, um, you know, they, they cry all, all day long for Baal to answer from heaven. And, of course, nothing happens. And now Elijah is saying, okay, my turn. So that's picking it up in verse 36. came to pass about the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, they've been doing this all day. And he says a simple prayer. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, the wood, the stone, the dust that licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah says, I want you to take these prophets of Baal and seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let one of them escape. And so they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishron and executed them there. Now, I've been there many times. And what's amazing is when, when we go up on this platform that overlooks it and you look down, the brook is still there after all these years. And talk about the scriptures coming to life. And um, he, said it's, he said to Ahab earlier, three and a half years to be exact, he says, it's not going to rain again, Ahab, until I say so. And so after this event, uh, he begins to pray. And uh, he tells the, the boy that was with him, he says, go out, look over to the Mediterranean, see if you see any storm clouds. He comes back. Nope, nothing, nothing happening. Go check it out again. And finally he comes back. He says, well, you know, there's this little cloud up there about the size of my hand. And he says, that's it. And he goes and tells Ahab, you better, you better get going. Because it's going to rain, and it's going to rain hard. 
And um, don't do it, Dwight. I got a Dylan song now in my head. Hard rain gonna fall. (laughs) It just comes out. I can't help it. I'm an old Dylan fan. And it fell. In verse um, 44, it came to pass the seventh time. There's a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, go say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops. In the meantime, the sky became black with clouds and wind and it was a heavy rain so that Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah and he girded up his loins, ran ahead of Ahab uh, to the entrance of Jezreel. All right, let's connect some dots here. It tells us in Revelation 7 verse 1 that angels are going to hold the four winds back from blowing. So there's going to be no wind. This is the first part of the Great Tribulation. No wind blowing. Now, in order to have our our, um, rain cycle, you have to have the wind blowing in order for it to evaporate, to pick it up, carry it, and dump it. And um, in Revelation 11, one of the powers that they have to do, it says there was no rain for the days of the two witnesses Prophecy. How long was their prophecies? It tells us in Revelation 11, verse 2, for 1,260 days, which is 42 months, which is times, times, and half a times, or another way of saying three and a half years. So when I tell people in Revelation, when we go through it, you know, people first time through it, they begin to roll their eyes, right? It's not going to rain for three and a half years. And I always say what? Has that ever happened before? And the answer is, yes, it has. Exactly by the same guy, exactly for three and a half years. So again, the importance of teaching the whole counsel of God, and as you do, you you see this wonderful pattern begin to emerge, and uh, it's it's really mind-boggling. The reason I picked Elijah, he was the greatest, maybe except for Moses, of the prophets of the Old Testament. Jesus himself said that John the Baptist was the greatest man who ever lived, yet he had days of doubt. He actually doubted that Jesus was the Messiah. Here, Elijah, in chapter 18, one day he's calling down fire from heaven. In chapter 19, the word got back to Jezebel that Elijah is responsible for killing 400 of her prophets. Let's pick it up, uh, verse 19, 1 through 4. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and and more if I do not make your life the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he said that he might die and said, it's enough. Lord, take my life. I am no better than my father's. What's your point, Dwight? (laughs) Talk about a mountaintop experience. I mean, calling fire out of heaven one day and the next day running saying, I want to die. And here's the greatest prophet um, who should have been thinking, 
you know, the challenge was let's see who's God here and who's powerful. And yet he's running from this woman Jezebel. Well, in verse 5, we're told that he was underneath this broom tree and suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And then he took and there he had a, um, a cake of bread and coals and a jar of water and he sat down and ate and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and drank and he went in the strength of food, of that food for 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. Now that was, a, that was some serious health food right there. <laughs> he didn't eat for 40 days or 40 nights. Where did he end up? On Mount Horeb. If you're taking notes this morning, jot down Exodus 34, verse 28. This is the same mountain that God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. Moses also didn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights. So again, we're making connections. And we find here that in verse 9, my Bible actually says it. Elijah has self-pity. He's in this place on the run from Jezebel, and he's having his little pity party. And he went into a cave, and he spent the night in the place, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said, what are you doing here, Elijah? I, I almost think that's funny. What are you doing there, Elijah? And he goes on and say, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel, forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. <sighs> I'm the only one that's left. And, and they seek to take my life. And he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. Now notice this. A great and a strong wind torn to the mountain and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after a fire, a still small voice. Well, Elijah's not being moved or impressed by any of this, he's having his little pity party, and we have um, um, fire, we have wind, we have earthquakes, and the Lord is in none of it. Can I get sidetracked here just for a little bit? Somebody give me a go ahead and I'll go ahead. Okay. Elijah's not responding. He's only responding to that still small voice. You know, there's a lot of preachers on TV today that are full of a lot of air. There's a lot of fire going on, a lot of earthquake stomping to pump you up, to get you really worked up. And you know what I have to say to that? The Lord's not in any of that. What is he in? Well, Matthew 11:29 says, take my yoke upon you, and learn about me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Elijah wasn't moved by the fire and the lightning and, and um, all that. The Lord isn't in that. But that still small voice, what did Jesus say? My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And when I see, the, when I see evangelists or, or any pastor trying to pump you up, 
Don't go there because some of you know where I'm thinking about going right now. I'm there to pump you up. <laughs> and they do. They want to pump you up so you're pumped up when you leave. Well, this isn't that kind of a Bible study. This is a reality Bible study. The greatest men who ever lived had days of doubt. The greatest prophet in the Old Testament is running for his life and wants to die. Reality. By the greatest. Days of doubt. Times when um, the only thing that can, can get your attention is that still small voice. Verses of 15 through 18 uh, when the Lord, he comes out, the Lord asks him the same question. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? <laughs> I think it's funny. It's the same question he asked earlier. And he gives him the same lame excuse. Well, I'm very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel forsaken you, on and on and on. I'm, I'm the only one left. And verse 18 says, he's gonna tell him, look, Elijah, you think you're the only one? You're not. There's seven thousand in Israel that have not bowed their knee to Baal and have not uh, nor kissed him. But my point is in verse 15, he's in there hiding out and then the Lord said to him, "This I want you to get back to work, Elijah. He said, I want you to go return your way to Damascus. When you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. You shall also anoint Jehu the son of uh, uh, Nimshai as king over Israel and Elisha is going to be a prophet in your place. So he's actually t- basically saying, all right, enough of your pity party. Enough of your feeling sorry for yourself. Get out, of, get out of your place where you're hiding. Let's get back and be about the, the Lord's business. Elijah had his, had his days. Now, today, there are Jezebels out there looking to take out men and women of God. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? I mean, it's becoming more obvious every day. The pressure that's being put up upon the church uh, to get rid of Christianity altogether. And um, you can handle it one of two ways. You can stand up and say, not on my watch. Or you can run and put your head in the sand and hide in a cave. Elijah had his days of fear. And my point here is just a reality check of what it really means to be a Christian living in the last days. Should we be surprised if we see a falling away in the church? No, 2 Thessalonians 2 says there's gonna be apostasy. Um, There'll be a falling away from solid biblical doctrine and teaching. And um, um, when I see... Uh, let's, I tell you what, let's just go ahead here and begin to t- wind this up. Oh, I got all kinds of time. Huh. Never mind, I won't go there either. Second Corinthians chapter 11. Second Corinthians chapter 11. I'll begin to close up this morning with um, Matthew, but first Second Corinthians 11. The Lord said, all those who live godly in him, are going to suffer persecution. Well, I don't like that. The Bible says, my way is straight and narrow and difficult. Well, I don't like that either. And um, um, the things Jesus told his disciples that they did to John the Baptist and to him, they're going to also do to you. Well, I don't like that one either. And yet, 
clearly, when we look at, we've talked about the greatest man that ever lived, John the Baptist. We talked about the greatest Old Testament prophet, Elijah. I think Paul was the greatest of, of the 12 apostles. Here's his lifestyle. Let's pick it up in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23. He's talking about the reality of ministry. Are the ministries of Christ, I speak a fool. I am more in labors, more abundant in stripes, above measure, in prison, more frequently, in deaths, often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Jesus got just one time and that almost killed the Lord, he was so weak. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentile, in perils of the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils from false brethren, in weariness and in toil, in sleeplessness, often hungry and thirsty, in fasting often, cold and naked, and besides all the other things which come upon me daily, that was a daily lifestyle for Paul, my deep concern for all the churches. I don't remember which pastor at the pastor's conference said it, but he read a list like this and made a comment something like this. Paul had just got done reading um, Joel Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now, and now he has all this stuff happening to him. And the point was to show the absurdity of teaching that kind of a doctrine. The happy, clappy, make you feel good. That's not what the Bible teaches. The real Christian life, let's go back and, and um, uh, look at Matthew 11, that'll be the last one to look at this morning, is how to deal with days of doubt. I'll share something here. The real Christian life, the fact of the matter is, you're gonna have hard days and bad days, amen? I'll be honest with you, I had a hard week this week. I was supposed to be in Omaha, and my brother Scott came over to my house on Tuesday night, and he told me my brother in Arizona had a heart attack and died. And um, we're on the phone, and we're absorbing all this, and um, the reality is, um, you have family members, they're here one day, he was 62 years old, uh, living in Arizona for quite a few years, and now he's not here. Now we're talking funeral stuff. And so I was saving that, I purposely asked Paul not to pray for our family before, because if I would have, it would have been a distraction for this study. So you understand why well, I'm saving it for the end. Somebody can say amen. I mean, we're doing as fine as we can. I, all my brothers and sisters um, know Jesus, and uh, we're, we're putting the service together. Um, but the reality of the Christian life is you have uh, bad days. Will it be days that you doubt? Well, ask yourself this. If the greatest man who ever lived doubted that Jesus was the Messiah, are you any better than John? I don't think so. Days of doubt, times when you run want to run and hide? You ever feel that way? Do you know it's okay? 
Uh, but the joy of the Lord is my strength. Yeah, well, you're to weep with those who weep and you're to rejoice with those who rejoice. You gotta teach it all. And like Paul said, if you hang around long enough, you'll get it all. Every area of life we'll get to touch on. What we're touching on today is how did Jesus go back and deal with John's stout? That's in Matthew chapter 11, verses four and five. Matthew 11. John was doubting. So what does the Lord do to reassure him? He says, go tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. Only the Messiah can do that. The poor have the gospel preached to them. Hmm. The preaching and teaching of the word. What's the best thing for a person when you're having a hard day and you're doubting, getting back to God's word and allow it to speak to you and you go, oh yeah, that's why I'm a Christian. Oh yeah, that's why I go to church. Oh yeah, that's why I go to men's study or, or Wednesday night prayer. And it all comes into focus again. It's the old song, turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of this world will what? Grow, fade away. It's a matter of keeping your focus on Jesus. What does Jesus do with John's doubt? Just preaches a word to him. And, um, you know, that's exactly what we're to do. And, and having said that, it doesn't displace that you are going to have days of doubt. You're going to have days and you're going to feel depressed and you want to run and hide because somebody said something bad about yours after or whatever. And know that. It happened to the greatest men that ever walked this planet. If it happened to them, it's going to happen to me. It's going to happen to you. Good place for an amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, as we begin the Gospel of Mark, we thank you for your word and the honesty of, um, of, of the greatest, John the Baptist and Elijah, having days of doubt, Elijah having days of fear, mountaintop experience one day, wanting to die the next. These are all human emotions that we have to deal with. But Lord, we're grateful for the Bible that tells us it's okay because it happened to, um, it happens to all of us. We're grateful that we have your word that reassures us um, that you are the way, the truth, and life, and that you have... Um, all eternity prepared for us. But you also told us that in this world we would have persecution and trouble. So we thank you for the honesty of the word of God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.